0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Simon Nante, and I am an instructor at Vancouver area universities, namely UBC, Simon Fraser University, and Kwantlen Polytechnic University. For today's podcast interview, I have invited Dan Malik, author of Liquor in the Liberal State, Drink and Order Before Prohibition, published by UBC Press. Dan Malik is a professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Brock University and the director of Brock's Centre for Canadian Studies. For over a decade, he was the editor-in-chief of the journal Social History of Alcohol and Drugs. He is a medical historian specializing in drug and alcohol regulation and policy, and he has published widely on that topic. His books include Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario, which won the Canadian Historical Association's 2013 Clio Prize for Ontario History, and When Good Drugs Go Bad, Opium, Medicine, and the Origins of Canada's Drugs Law. He is also the co-editor with Cheryl Warsh of Pleasure and Panic, New Essays on the History of Alcohol and Drugs, and the editor of the four-volume primary source collection, Drugs, Alcohol, and Addiction in the Long 19th Century. He contributes to current discussions on cannabis legalization, the opioid crisis, liquor laws, and drinking policy, using historically grounded analysis to provide insight into current issues. His latest book follows the history of liquor regulation in Ontario in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Dan Malik's book helps to demonstrate the challenges governments faced when dealing with alcoholic beverages, particularly within the conceptual framework of liberalism. Dan, it is a real pleasure to have you as my guest today. And let's have a cheers to a good discussion. (laughs) Thanks. It's great to be here. So I'd like to sort of start a bit on a lighter note. When I first started reading your book, in fact, the very first sentence of your book is, I hadn't intended to write this book. And yet you did write this book, and for that I'm very grateful. So I'd like to know what motivated you in the end to actually write this book. (sighs) It's one of those uh, weird situations. Probably
1: 2014, I uh, was invited to a conference in Bristol, England on, I think the topic was the something about the Victorian pub and having written a book on Ontario's post-prohibition liquor laws, specifically about post-prohibition public drinking regulation, like how they regulated the the drinking spaces, I thought, you know, I'd like to know more about the Victorian pub in Canada, in Ontario, right? So um, I just started looking at what was available. And the first thing that was available was a, a yawning gap in historical discussion about Ontario's liquor licensing. Um, I mean, it has been uh, addressed in some work. Craig Heron's booze touches on it, but Craig's is a a full, like a national study in a much longer period. Um, And so so the first thing I did for this, the paper at Bristol was just traced the changes in the licensing law from Confederation to 1867 up to uh, Prohibition. But That didn't really answer anything, right? Because that's just law. And and law usually both is driven by social forces and then drives change itself. So I started digging further into, I guess, these moments of change, the introduction of of bigger changes to the licensing law and um, how that slowly kind of constrained well, where people could drink and what people could do in the drinking space. So it was kind of like a prequel to my first book. And some people say to me, aren't you going to write the, the third in the trilogy? Because I haven't written a book on prohibition in Ontario, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> That's how I ended up writing it. It just got bigger. Like I kept thinking I was done. And then I found another, another commission or another uh, plebiscite
0: or another... Um, referendum or something, because it was just ongoing. Well, the central theme of your book is the concept of the liberal order, and so could you explain to us what is the liberal order, as it was understood by the historical actors in your book? Yeah, sure, Um, and that it's another one of those, the whole
1: focusing on liberalism and the liberal order was something I sort of stumbled on uh, about halfway through writing the book. I didn't know it was halfway through, because as I said, it just kept getting bigger, but I was reading through I think debates about licensing of, of liquor shops in Ontario, mid-1880s, or it may have been the beginning of the 1890s, there was a series of plebiscites. So there was a lot of uh, meat material in the newspapers about the, the the temperance people arguing against the liquor people. And then we also have John A. Macdonald's uh, letters. And so people were writing to McDonald about Uh, these issues as well Um, and at one point I just stopped and I said you know what they're all doing they're all talking about liberalism they're all um, articulating a different form of what a liberal state looks like like what this this thing called Canada should be and and where you know how we should balance off property rights versus equality versus um, like freedom right like the notion of freedom And, and I mean I've studied in some way temperance since I was a actually since I was an undergrad. And uh, it it was always sort of articulated, well, the temperance people always articulated their their issue as one about freedom from the bondage to alcohol, right? So I knew that already. But then when I started to look at at the the more intricate debates they were having, it really was about this notion of what what is a liberal state, uh, and what is this liberal state called Canada? And uh, I Confess, and I don't know if I say this in the book, but I'm not. Maybe I'm a little embarrassed about it. But I was aware of Ian Mackay's liberal order framework work that had been, uh, I think, published in 1999. But because I don't teach Canadian history, I hadn't really engaged in that debate. So I went back to that and started to, especially the the articles that came out of that and the books that came out of sort of that inspiration to think about liberalism in the liberal order I started to think yeah these are all different versions of liberalism and they were just they were all as legitimate but it depends on you know what your perspective is if you're sort of more of those progressive temperance types you see the liberal state as you know including kind of empowering the disenfranchised or the disadvantaged to live their best life and if you're more of a Uh, sort of a business-minded person, uh, like the liquor industry, Um, you're um, more interested in things like property rights and equality. And they all talked about something called British fair play and British liberty, right? So it was all this notion of Britishness and Canadian-ness and freedom and uh, they didn't really talk about equality too much, but equality can also be connected with the idea of justice, right? So they're talking about what's fair and what's what's just in this society, but way before the just society, right? Um, so that that was um, that was what it became, um, and I don't know how well I connect it to that liberal order framework itself, but that was sort of the the springboard into this idea of the liberal state and what where liquor fit. And as I say in the book, it really complicates the liberal state because. It's 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 about freedom to sell and freedom to consume, but it's also about freedom to be free of a certain type of bondage, you know, like enslaved to they would use language like enslaved to the bottle or King alcohol, and the demon run and all of those things.
0: Liquor licensing in Canada, certainly in Ontario, uh, was a municipal jurisdiction. When we sort of talk about liquor consumption, uh, even liberalism, some of these ideas—they're not sort of abstract notions. These are sort of part of the real lives of people. So, I wonder if you could sort of maybe set the stage a little bit and sort of tell us a bit about the role of uh, local communities. What sort of activities are going on in local communities, whether from the church or from the uh, the proprietors? It's funny because when, when I started
1: to think about this, I hadn't realized that um, prior to the creation of what was called uh, the Crooks Act or the 1876 liquor licensing law, the rights to license or the responsibility for licensing was at the municipal level. And this is very much a British tradition. Uh, through the 1800s, there were a lot of debates about in the UK about, uh, you know, liquor licensing as a municipal thing, something magistrates doled out or whatever. Um, but in, uh, in Ontario, and I'm pretty sure this was across the country, although I am very conscious not to assume Ontario is Canada right? <laughs> and Canada is Ontario. I know that's a big, uh, sort of a central Canadian, um, uh, conceit sometimes, uh, in in Ontario, municipalities had the right to license. They had the responsibility and the right to license and to inspect places where public drinking took place. Um, and so you can imagine in some communities where the temperance movement had more sway, um, they would be less liberal in their doling out of licenses. Um, and in other places where um, you know, the temperance movement wasn't as powerful, they might be less eh, less inclined to be, um, let's say, eh, stick to the letter of the law because the law prior to eighteen seventy six did, um, over sort of the the few decades before that, did t- sort of tighten up how many uh, sort of defining how many licenses a community could issue and how it could issue them and who did the issuing and and who inspected and, and that sort of thing. But it was all the municipal government had the final decision. So the municipal government would hire the license clerk. They would hire the inspector. The license clerk usually received a fee for um, issuing a license. Like part of the, the license fee went to the license clerk as his part of his wages. Um, but in some communities, for whatever reason, probably efficiency or patronage, um, the license clerk was also the inspector, right? So this person who's supposed to determine whether someone should get a license, the inspector, or whether someone should retain their license, was also the one who got money for issuing that license, right? And at the same time, the municipalities got money for the license. The license fee was went to the municipality, at least part of it. Um, so in times of depression, you know, you want to make a little more money for your municipality, let's just issue more licenses. And on top of that, or along with that, um, the tavern keeper was a fairly powerful figure in the community. He, mostly he, but sometimes she, um, could sort of Control the dialogue around different politics. So you know, if the classic idea: nineteenth-century newspapers were far from um, objective in their reporting. So you had conservative papers, you had more liberal papers, or grit papers, or reform papers, and uh, and the and and up to about a little after um, Confederation, we also had sort of an open vote where people would declare their vote. So there was a lot of ways for the tavern keeper to sort of influence people's vote, um, influence the way people talked about issues. And so politicians, municipal politicians and beyond, were really attentive to the need to keep them happy, right? So if you start to shut down taverns or not issue licenses to certain public places, um, aka taverns, um, you could inspire the wrath of those people, right? Um, so it was a really kind of a complicated uh Situation that that to us is complicated, to them was uh, to, to people at the time was, it was it was natural, but it was caused complications around you know political affiliation and things like that. Uh, and then what the um, when the reformers or liberals or grit, whichever you want to call them, came into power in early eighteen seventies. Soon after they came to power, the temperance movement was really happy because. Liberals tended to be more inclined towards temperance although there were dries, we call temperance people dries, right, on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, Very very vocal in the Conservative Party as well. Um, So when the Liberals came to power in Ontario, the temperance people thought, okay, finally we've got a political party that is going to listen to us and we're gonna get some, some reform. Um, and the result was uh, a series of gradual incremental laws that took the change things, for example, instead of recommending an inspector or allowing municipalities to have an inspector, they required an inspector and things like that. So they sort of changed some of the rules, changed some of the, the fee structure and stuff like that until 1876 when they said this isn't working, we're taking more control over it and to, to depoliticize the licensing at the at the municipal level, which politicizes it at the provincial level.
0: That's another sort of point that you start to raise as we get into the heart of your book is about the licensing system and how partisan it is and how they try to shift away from that partisanship. Uh, could you explain a bit how the licensing system sort of moves away from that municipal sort of partisanship and how it sort of starts to move into the late 19th century? So
1: the first thing to to know is that partisanism and the sort of that that patronage system and some people call it cronyism was very much part of the politics of Ontario and probably of Canada at the time. In other words, it was seen as a functional, although weird to us, we think, you know, how can patronage, how can all this, giving your friends the plums of of power, the, the the spoils of power, how can that possibly be functional? Um But to think that if you have a system like liquor licensing or say customs or other sorts of tax collection and it's run by people who are not politically aligned with you, you could see how those people might try to undermine your authority and make the system that you're constructing look flimsy or shoddy by by messing it up, right? Uh, So the idea of having your party, your partisan friends involved in this does have some kind of potential functional value. At the same time, you also need to reward people who helped you out so they will help you out in the future, right? So it had a a political purpose and it also, in the minds of people at the time, had a a very functional purpose, right? And one of the great... the great manipulators of partisan uh, favors was Sir Johnny MacDonald. Uh, so, when Oliver Mowat became the Premier of Ontario, he came in about a year after the Liberals won uh-huh. power, and Oliver Mowat knew Johnny MacDonald. I think they worked together in Kingston. I don't think they liked each other very much. Mowat uh, started to use his position to both build his party's power, and they stayed in power for, like, 34, 32, something like that, years. And to build his power and to try to chip away at um, McDonald's federal, the, the federal government's power, especially the federal Tories. What the Crooks Act did, amongst other things, was it... Uh, took the license issuing authority out of the municipal government's hands. It took the right to um, hire inspectors out of the municipal government's hands, kept licensing municipal because it appointed in every what was called um, license district, which roughly paralleled um, provincial ridings, electoral ridings. It it put in in each license district was a group called the Board of License Commissioners. And this was a three-person unpaid board who were supposed to be sort of like respectable men of the community who could sort of know which communities, uh, which communities or which license uh, or tavern keepers deserved um, a license, who were the more respectable license uh, holders. They could kind of have a sense of what's going on on the ground and uh, the provincial government would appoint paid license inspectors. So it removed all of the, it removed the municipalities, uh, power entirely, the municipal government's power entirely from um, from the system. Uh, and as you can imagine, if you suddenly have, what was it, about 104 licensed districts with at least... 104 inspectors who were all paid. It was a feeding frenzy of partisanship, right? So, uh, I've got it's gonna read. The great thing is a lot of these letters have have remained of people writing to the provincial secretary or to the premier, saying, "Hey, you know, remember how I was really supportive of you and really helped you, or, or how my son really, you know, helped you and he needs a job, and you know, you could give him this." And this was this feeding frenzy, right? Um, and. And so when I started early on in this project, I started to look at that uh and I started very skeptically to to say, okay, so there it's just a partisan project and it's totally corrupt, and it's all the liberals or the grits trying to take take away from the Tories. But it, it became clear to me that when you've got hundreds of people applying um for for this position, and there weren't hundreds of these positions, they had to make a decision. They had to decide, they had to base their decisions on something other than just you're a good liberal worker or a grit worker um or reform worker they they use the term i'll say liberal from now on even though at the time it was grit or reform and so they had to start using other criteria right and and i mean no one sat there saying okay well these are the points we're going to use it wasn't sort of an objective system but in each community they would look at different uh ways that um their power or this position could be filled and who was best who made what 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 did a good inspector look like? Right. And so again, it was someone who really, it was about a balance. It was like, you didn't want someone who was too radically temperance oriented because they wouldn't actually issue any licenses or they would really be negative about everyone, but you didn't want someone who was too. And and the other thing about someone who's too dry, too much of a temperance person is they would have no respect from the people who sell liquor. So how, you know, why would those people respect the government that, hired this person Um, and on the other side you did not want someone who's too in bed with the liquor industry because the temperance people would freak out and it would look like it was just a a, a, it would make the law look useless so they really did have to to tread this fine line between um wet and dry but they really did they had to kind of uh, adjust it and and there's it's really tough to know because not all of the records remain from all of the licensed districts um and i don't know why some are there and some aren't there was no real sort of there was no real logic to it I just think some were just some were lost and some didn't weren't so but we do have a good sense of you know in some communities that were very liberal oriented certain people would get would get uh the the job and in some because I would read them without knowing who got the job almost like it's like a reality TV thing. I'm reading different letters, supporting one person, supporting another. I'm like, oh, who's going to get it? This guy sounds better. but Oh, no, this guy sounds OK, too. And then someone else completely would be given the job. Like, I don't know why that happened, but it was sort of this interesting interplay between everyone manifesting a different... um Justification for their person being the best person. And it wasn't just you're a good worker. It could be um, they have the respect of everyone in the community. They have the respect of the tavern keepers and of the, the temperance people. They're a good religious person. This community will not function without a good temperance person in this position. All of these sorts of Justifications came into it. Um, And so it kind of gives a sense of the complexity of Ontario society at the time and the the sort of complexity of the liquor issue at the time. Um, But it also, but it's one of those things as historians, we can only kind of speculate as to why really these decisions were made.
0: Well, it is very complex, and you sort of uh, write that as well. Uh, and something that should be pretty uh, clear are plebiscites, right? As you, as you note, um, <laughs> the liquor issue could be intoxicating or it could be toxic. Liquor was a complex issue. Provincial and federal leaders tried to avoid dealing with this issue head on. So even when voters voted in favor of prohibition in plebiscites, leaders could reject the results. And so since your book deals principally with Ontario politics, could you explain why political measures to regulate alcohol, let alone sort of prohibit it outright, were so difficult in this sort of liberal order framework?
1: Yeah, uh, sure. So um, there, there's a few different things to keep in mind on this as well. First of all, um, and it's uh, a commentator at the beginning of the 1900s said something like you know, liquor was such a complicated issue. No, no politician actually wanted to win. The right to regulate liquor, right? Like it's like give it to someone else because it's too it's too much of a hot potato. But um, but they definitely in Ontario, and, and this is one of the things I talk about throughout the book is how it really. Was, and you mentioned in your introduction, it really was. Um, a matter it became a matter of provincial versus federal authority um, and I was telling this story some, to some students in a Canadian studies program in the U.S. and the one student said so this is a kind of like provincial life like state like rights and Federal rights? It's like, yeah, we don't usually use the word rights, but it's the same kind of idea. Who has the right to do this? Who has the right to do that? So especially in the 1890s, slowly over from about 1873 on to the early 1890s, there seemed to be this agreement that within our constitution... The federal government had the well, it's it's in the, the Constitution in Section uh, ninety one of the Constitution. The federal government has the authority over trade and commerce, but the provincial governments in Section ninety two has the authority literally to license taverns. Right, it says right there in it said right there in the in the Constitution, taverns, billiard rooms, and other places for revenue purposes. Right, so that wasn't unclear, but what was unclear was what because that overlaps right trade and commerce selling booze is trade, <laughs> so where does where do the authorities stop and um, early on in the story I tell um, the speaker of, of someone in i think it was eighteen seventy three or seventy four introduced um, a law to in, implement provincial prohibition right like that 's what the temperance people kept doing. they kept trying to get the government to pass provincial prohibition, and the speaker just declared it outside of the scope of provincial Rights or authority, which is called ultra vires, the Latin legal term, um, because it was intra vires, the the legal term for um, within the federal government's jurisdiction. So it just stopped the conversation and it turned to the response or the the ability for the province to allow municipalities to vote themselves dry, which seemed to be a holdover from pre uh, Confederation laws. Uh, And so there was this ongoing debate between and in the courts all the way up to the um, Judicial Committee of the Privy Council about whether the federal government was the final arbiter of liquor licensing or whether the provincial government was and up until mid 80s it, it seemed like the federal government was gaining the ground that um, centralists like Johnny McDonald wanted it to have which was more federal power but a series of court cases and decisions after that seem to erode that power to the point where in the beginning of the 1890s, Oliver Mowat, who is interesting, very interesting character, if... if you don't know anything about Moet. Like, he was fascinating. And from a booze perspective, from an alcohol perspective, he was a teetotaler. He did not drink. He was a liberal, so he would have been in line with the temperance people. But he was absolutely against prohibition. He he, And he was a very clever politician. So he really did play the two sides off against each other. He gave a lot of... Um, lip service to temperance, but he was also supportive of the liquor industry. Um, so so he was in a tough spot because the temperance people were pushing him further and further and further. Um, and he'd kind of give a bit of ground and then sort of stop and give a bit of ground. So by the beginning of the 1890s, he said, look, um, we will... I'm trying to remember the whole story now. Uh, we, what I'm going to do is I will give you prohibition to the fullest um, extent of the law that I can. And um, and then he did a, a referendum. Uh, do you support prohibition? And uh, this referendum, uh, I think 1892, 93, was um, in favour. The, the, the vote was a majority in favour of prohibition in Ontario. But Moet said, hey, but we don't have the... The right to do it because of that decision back in, or because of the, the interpretation I mentioned um, that was that the speaker used back in the '70s. So, um, even though a majority of voters, no, a majority of votes cast were in favor of prohibition, um, Moet did not implement it. He said, "Okay, well, we'll see what happens once it goes through the courts." So and when it went through the courts, um, and the judicial committee said, in fact, the province does have this right. Um, to uh, implement province-wide prohibition, but not on the manufacture, just on the sale, because of that license law, right? Moa said, "Well, the vote was for total prohibition, including sa- uh, manufacture, and and we don't know that Ontarians didn't vote for that. I mean, the Ontarians didn't vote for that; they voted for to- complete prohibition. So, you know, I'm not going to implement it because I don't have that mandate. I have a mandate for something I can't legally do. Um, so then." Uh, around that time Wilfrid Laurier came into power part of one of his promises was to have a a referendum on prohibition which was held in 1898 and Laurier like Moet was smart and he knew that that it's a real it's a hot potato so he kept pushing off um, uh, doing the the, the referendum and finally he held it in 98 uh, and then there's a whole debate of what's the question going to be? Is it just going to be, do you want prohibition or is it going to be, you know, s- uh, the liquor industry wanted some additional statement in the referendum about how that $70 million of revenue will be replaced or $7 must have been $7 million, will be replaced. Um, maybe there will be an extra tax on people, but then the dry people are saying, well, no, if you put that in, it's going to be an absolute no. And so Laurier just decided the very simple question, do you support prohibition um was a longer question than i just stated um and much to the surprise of a lot of observers um all provinces except quebec voted in favor of it again though it was all votes not all voters it was like it was not a um it's not nearly as many people as as had voted in um the the election itself that voted um Laurier in. Um, And to many people's surprise, even BC, British Columbia voted in favour, which it seemed that there wasn't a lot of prohibition sentiment in BC. But the funny thing about these referenda, and there was a third one in 1902, I'll talk about in a second, was that some people commented, and there was a lot of this discussion, that because it was political, some people who would not normally support prohibition might have voted for prohibition just to make Laurier look bad, right? So, okay, Laurier, now you've got the prohibition mandate. Are you going to actually do it? And so there was this, again, there was this kind of question around whether it was a really legitimate vote. But on top of that, um, one of the things that people had learned over the past 20 years since, um, well, since 1878, when we got something called the Scott Act, which was a local option act, which allowed counties or cities to vote themselves dry across the country, was that if when you implement prohibition without a a large majority of people supporting it, it just doesn't work because you have so many people who want booze, they can get booze because guess what? Fermentation is a natural process, right? (laughs) It's not like trying to get opium or something, which can't grow well or cocaine. You you could try to block it. Um, Liquors is there. Um, So Laurie had a bit of a dilemma. The funny thing about this dilemma is as soon as the vote... Went through, the temperance people said, "Oh, we've lost." Even though they saw they had a majority, because they knew they didn't have a big enough majority to to be able to enforce it. But then they kind of went into a conference a couple of days after the vote. The Dominion Alliance for the the Dominion Alliance for the total suppression of the liquor traffic, which was kind of the the national um, alliance uh, for temperance. And when they came out of the meeting, they were sort of in lockstep, saying, "Oh no, we're we." To, clearly, Canadians want want prohibition. We want prohibition. And so Laurier kind of said, OK, well, just let me think about this because it's a fairly complex issue. And he went away. Uh, well, he didn't go away, but he just stopped talking about it for about six months and came back in March of 99, 1899 and said, no, we're not going to do it. And his justification, I think he was right. He was absolutely right that... Um, it just wasn't enforceable. A lot of it, historians have inter, had interpreted this as because Quebec did not vote in favor of it, and because Laurier was a his his writing was Quebec and he was a Quebecer, that clearly he just didn't want to upset his constituents. But from what I've read of his his notes and from the sort of longer history of familiar the people's familiarity with how unworkable prohibition was without a vast. Um, majority of people in favor of it, I think Loria was just being pragmatic and saying it 's just not going to happen with this I think it was like twenty two percent of votes of voters supported prohibition, so it was a it was not a majority, although more than fifty percent of votes cast supported it right so he's just like this is just not the kind of weight of numbers you need and then uh, the third in Ontario, the third um, referendum. It was actually a referendum, not just a, a plebiscite. It was supposed to bind the government to the decision. Was in a 1902, after a temperance guy became premier, and uh, he, um, but he still would not just he w- he still was was waffling on it because again he knew that from a lot of experience that in fact, uh, um, you needed a big majority to um, support. Prohibition. So he came up with a really kind of a weaselly way of doing it where he said, okay, so if the votes, the the law said something like the votes um, had to be as many votes cast in favor of prohibition as supported the government. Like the number in government. So if so, if 100,000 people voted in favor of the government in the last election, then you needed at least 100,000 votes in favor of prohibition. Just because he was saying if that can sway the government, sway the election for a government, it should be able to sway the election for prohibition. But then he cleverly decided it wasn't the last election, the previous election, but the next election. So then they ran an election. And the temperance people were saying, "Okay, look, so if we if we all rush to the polls and vote for the liberals again, that's going to create a huge bar for um, for that referendum. But if we don't go to the polls and vote for the liberals, then the Tories will get in. And um, James Whitney, the Tory leader, was absolutely blunt about his uh, lack of support for he said prohibition doesn't work. Absolutely not. It does not work. So there was this this bind. Right. And they ended up. You know, the vote went through and, um, and then they did the referendum. And because they had set these clear um, victory conditions, uh, even though that referendum was also in uh, majority in favor of prohibition, but not enough votes based on the conditions set out in the law, they just didn't do the, they, they didn't, um, they didn't pass it. And that's kind of where it died, because in 1905, Whitney did become the premier and he was just dead set against prohibition no more referendums
0: finally you you end your book by writing the notion of common good as a principle upon which to base policy needs to be considered carefully and you kind of bring this up in the context of contemporary issues about uh, cannabis legalization uh, sugary drinks uh, tobacco or when i was writing this book it was soon
1: after cannabis became legalized Um, And it was during debates that are still going on about restrictions on alcohol, um, harm reduction and things like that. And I think um, what I like to kind of allude to is current issues around um, other ways that things that are seen as problematic by some people. Uh, may not be problematic to other people, right? So alcohol is a great example, and it's still one that's going on because um, the temperance movement by the end of the 19th century was very much a middle-class evangelical movement, and they didn't recognize or accept the potential that drinking in a tavern was, had a functional value for some people right? And, uh, if, you know, people who've studied working class history or, um, a lot of history know that, you know, a lot of stuff happened in the tavern that wasn't just drinking, right? And drunkenness, it was socialization. People would make work connections. They would just blow off some steam, right? Or they would sleep there or eat there. I mean, the tavern, it's one thing we haven't mentioned, but the 19th century tavern was not just a drinking space. By law, it had to have rooms for sleeping. Um, in the countryside, it had to have, uh, sheds for the wagons and horses uh it had to have food and all of those things so it was it was a hotel um and in some communities that was like the only public space uh in in working class areas that was also a uh, very much a social a space of socialization so from the outside view of a, a middle class person who had a nice house to go home to and um, had a, a steady job and didn't have to stand at the the gate of the factory and be selected for the work the next day or find another job, that that just doesn't didn't often connect to them. So so that that idea of common good collapses when you don't consider. Who the common are, right? So when you end up with this notion of, well, you know, it's 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 a bourgeois conceit, right? Marxists call that bourgeois conceit, where it's like my perspective um, is the most valid perspective, even though I don't know where you're coming from. Right. And that's something we saw with cannabis and legalization, uh, where a lot of commentators were saying you have to be super strict on it, but then that just doesn't respect the cultures around cannabis and the, and the consumption of it. And we're seeing right now with issues of drinking, um, guidelines and, and, and ideas of, of, of what's, what's, uh, what's harmful. And, um, not recognizing people who who are articulating those sorts of stricter guidelines don't understand the other potential benefits of alcohol consumption which may not be strictly biological but might be social so and it does really often connect with um behaviors i guess we would say that are um that are recreational in nature right so so um people don't don't aren't concerned so much about medical activity like like medical activities you know taking drugs for medical purposes but when it gets into things like um something that seems completely superfluous like drinking they don't recognize that in some communities for some reasons it might not be completely superfluous it might have a functional value Uh, so i think that's what i was talking about in that common uh that that idea of the common good
0: Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was really my pleasure to talk about this. (laughs) My guest today was Dan Malik, the author of Liquor and the Liberal State, Drink and Order Before Prohibition. This book was published by UBC Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Simon Nante. This interview was recorded on March 8th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.